It is so good to be with you this evening, especially you 5pmers. I normally disappear to the hall before this point of the evening, so it's great to be able to stick around with you tonight. Um, this past week, I had the privilege of going on study camp, uh, and there's nothing like John 3 ringing in your ears to send you into mission. And so as I left very, unfortunately, early on Monday morning, I had the words that we heard preached from the Gospel of John last week circling in my head. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And as I went headfirst into a massive week of speaking to high schoolers about the validity and the reasonableness of the Christian faith, as I called them to respond to Jesus' own call to be born again, I couldn't help but marvel at how good God is and how good his word is, that their very questions that they came back to us with as a leadership team were a lot of what John 4 speaks to. Okay, if I'm to be reborn, what does it look like? If I'm to choose Christianity, what does that mean for my life? And so as we dive in, we see Jesus give three beautiful visual examples of what life with him looks like. It is living water, it is true worship, and it is spiritual food. And his conversation with this Samaritan woman speaks profoundly into the human condition, I think. I think Jesus only can do this in the way that he does We have this condition of wanting more, I think, of needing more. Have you ever noticed that we're creatures who are not easily satisfied or, at the very least, are not easily satisfied for very long? And Dr. Alexander, who is a psychologist, calls it the state of the wanting mind. And he says, when we're in a state of wanting mind, we're never satisfied. No matter what we have, if we attain the object of our longing, we simply replace the old desire with a new one. We ache for things that lie out of our grasp and cling to an unwholesome belief about how things ought to be or should have been. How often do we long for something, the new iPhone, the next step in your job up that ladder, a new house or at least a new remodel, whatever it might be, How long do we ache for it and then once get it? How quick are we to ache for something new? And tonight we look at a rich passage that speaks straight to the heart of this. It's a passage that answers the deepest longings of our human hearts. And it actually offers a satisfaction that is eternal, that is unending, unlike our human desires, and that is never depleted. And it begins with a simple but beautiful question from Jesus. Have a look with me at the beginning of the passage. Jesus is arriving in the town of Sakar at Jacob's well, and he sits down beside it, and we read in verse 7, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And it's worth pausing here to speak briefly about how important this narrative itself is, how potent 
this image is of Jesus sitting with this woman. And by initiating this conversation alone, just in this one act, Jesus overcomes a whole bunch of human barriers that we tend to put up between ourselves. The first one he does is that of race. This person isn't just a person, this person is a Samaritan. And Jesus is a Jew. And we don't often feel the weight of how real the hatred was between these peoples. In fact, few Jews would even touch food or drink that had been handled in any way by a Samaritan. It was thought to be utterly defiled just by their touch. They were the enemy of the Jews. And so to not just strike up a conversation, but to ask for a drink was unthinkable to every other Jew, but not for Jesus. He doesn't seem at all phased by this. In fact, it's the first most beautiful example of cross-cultural evangelism that we see in this gospel. And it's not done by his apostles, it's done by Jesus himself, stepping over our human barriers. And we can't overlook the fact that this whole conversation takes place at a very specific spot. This well was the one place that Jews and Samaritans alike had common history over. As they trace back to Jacob and all the way back to Abraham, their heritages cross paths here. In this shared sacred place, Jesus reaches across the divide. He crosses that human barrier that we so easily put up. And he converses with a Samaritan. But she's not just a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan woman. And the second barrier that Jesus crosses is that of gender. Jesus is a rabbi, a Jew with authority, a teacher. And he's speaking with a woman in public, alone. At this time and in this culture, Jewish men, let alone rabbis, did not do anything of the sort. At best... It was thought to be a waste of time, to be something that you just shouldn't bother with. But at worst, it was a distraction. It was pulling you away from the study of the Torah. In fact, a few years later, it would be enshrined in Jewish law that Sumerian daughters, any women, were known as nido from birth. Translation being, in a perpetual state of uncleanliness. And it was thought that to converse with them was the highest order of inappropriate and the highest order of disobedient. And yet here we see Jesus, our Lord, sitting and talking and asking this woman, this Samaritan woman, for a drink. And not only that, having a rich conversation with her, choosing to reveal deep theological truths about himself to her. We see a similar event in Luke 10 where Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and he affirms her. She is where she's meant to be, directly receiving the teachings of her Lord. We see another example in this gospel in chapter 11 where we see Jesus reveal, I am the resurrection. To who? To Martha and Martha alone. 
Dorothy L. Sayers puts it beautifully when she says this. Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cross and uh, first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them or treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungencies from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. In a question, Jesus overcomes our assumptions about race, our barriers that we put up between human genders. And in one fell swoop, he also stoops down into dealing with our levels of social status. Customarily, women would come to the well together, and certainly not at this time of day. They'd come well before, in the early hours of the morning before it got hot. And yet, as we read, we discover that she's had five husbands and is currently living with a man who isn't her husband. And we realize that this fact alone would make her an outcast, would make her isolated, looked down upon even from those within her community by virtue of how she's living. And yet, Jesus speaks to her as as he speaks to anyone, with kindness, but also with grace-filled truth. And it's interesting that this conversation is placed right next door to the one with Nicodemus, just a chapter earlier, because the contrast between them really could not be more distinct. Nicodemus is powerful and respected. He's orthodox and he's theologically trained. And she is unschooled, without influence, a known sinner, mostly despised. Nicodemus is a man, a Jew, a ruler. This woman is female, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. Nicodemus sought Jesus out under the cover of darkness. And here we see Jesus seeking this woman out in broad daylight. They could not be more different, and yet... The thing they have in common is that they need Jesus. Both need him more than anything else in the world. And meeting him changes both of their lives profoundly. And so as we pivot to see these three topics of Jesus' teaching, we have all three of these ringing in the back of our minds. In verse 7, Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This theme of living water is a beautiful one, not only throughout John's Gospel, but all throughout the Bible. And there's so many references we could go to to elaborate. But I want to jump to Revelation chapter 7. 
It says this, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Springs of living water. It sounds remarkably like John 4, doesn't it? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, says Jesus, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Samaritan woman, much like everyone who Jesus speaks to, thinks he's talking about earthly water about earthly thirsts and needs, and yet Jesus is talking about a living, eternal, heavenly water. He's come to give water that quenches the most unquenchable of thirsts. And this water, it satisfies us in a way that nothing in this world can. But I wonder what it is that comes to your mind when we talk of thirsts, when we talk of longings, because aren't our longings often misplaced? In fact, aren't what we think we want just a shadow of something much deeper, much more important? We long for money, but underneath it is a deep thirst for security, for control, for knowing what's ahead and knowing that we'll be okay. We long for a career, perhaps, but underneath that is a desire to be valued, to be respected, or perhaps we long for praise and for validation, for status, and isn't under that a deep thirst to just know that we are truly loved and accepted? Isn't that what's driving it? What Jesus is offering this Samaritan woman and us tonight is a satisfaction that goes to the heart of our wants the very root of the things we thirst for. And it's a bottomless, unending source of true satisfaction, not just worldly satisfaction. As they continue talking, as Jesus did with Nicodemus, he sees to her very heart, her very soul. And we remember back to chapter 2, 25. Jesus knew what was in each person. He knows the reasons she's here, alone, in the scorching heat of the day. He knows what she longs for. He knows what she aches for. And he asks her, go call your husband here. And she responds that she has none, what Jesus has known all along. And as this woman realizes perhaps that he's definitely a prophet, but maybe the prophet She pivots to talk of something she does know, of the temple. Well, you Jews think that we should worship at Jerusalem, but my people, we think we should worship here at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus responds in verse 21. Have a look with me. Believe me, he says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Just as God is love and God is light, God is the very essence of spirit. And if God is spirit, then to some degree he is divine, he is unknowable, he is unreachable, unless he chooses to reveal himself and pull back that curtain, to unveil his very character. And that is exactly what we see Jesus doing to Nicodemus, to this Samaritan woman, and to us here tonight. We get to see God through Jesus. And through him, we actually get to personally know God, intimately know God, deeply know God. We're no longer confined to the temple. We're no longer bound by time and place. In fact, the word for spirit used here is the very same word as the word used for wind that we heard just last week, where Jesus declares the wind will blow wherever it wishes. Well, it has blown to Samaria the very enemy of the Jews. And it has blown to Roseville on the other side of the globe. And now through that same spirit, we actually get to worship God, not in a place, not in one time, but with every thought and every word and every act. And we're called by God to do so because our worship matters. Now, the era of the Jews and the Samaritans was getting caught up in what place is this worship meant to be in? What temple is correct in order for me to bring my worship to God? But I wonder if we make similar mistakes. It's not hard to see the ways that we too get caught up in the form of worship. Should we worship with arms raised or not? Should we worship with one leader at the front or multiple? Should we use traditional songs or should we modernize a little? We can easily get caught up in the form of our worship, and yet Jesus' priority is the content. It's the placement of our worship that he's concerned with. Worshipping God in spirit and in truth. True worship is not found here. True worship is not found only on a Sunday. In fact, Romans 12 says... It's found in the offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is what's holy and pleasing to our God. And that is what is true and proper worship. And so as we see this conversation unfold, it leads to the, probably the most significant moment between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Having heard all that Jesus is saying, but probably not understanding it to a full degree, the woman falls back on the knowledge that, well, the Messiah is coming. And when he gets here, he'll explain everything. And little does she know who is standing right in front of her. And Jesus replies with 10 astounding words. I love verse 26. I, the one you are speaking to, I am he. I am he. This man sitting by the well 
is in fact the long-awaited saviour of the world. And it's astonishing to the first readers of this, as it is to us here tonight, that he chose to reveal this for the first time in this gospel to a Samaritan woman, of all people, sitting by a well in the heat of the day, exhausted from travelling. He declares, I am he. And just as he makes this beautiful revelation, the disciples come back in. You can imagine their surprise at the scene they've walked in on. Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman on his own. The woman can't help but leave to tell the whole town what's just happened. And the disciples are now concerned for Jesus' physical well-being, urging him to eat something. But verse 32, Jesus stops them. I have food you know nothing about. The disciples say to each other, Could someone have brought him some food? Isn't it beautiful that the disciples and the Samaritan woman are both in the same predicament? Jesus is speaking of wonderful theological truths and neither of them get it. (laughs) But my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' sustenance comes from doing the will of God. His entire ministry, in fact, is about nothing other than submission to and the performance of the will of the one who has sent him. How beautiful is that? I think often we can think of obedience to God as what we have to give up as we obey him, what he'll call for us to sacrifice to him. But Jesus reverses that thinking entirely. To him, Doing God's will is the very thing that fuels us, that sustains us. It's not only above everything, but it will fuel you to do everything else. And without doing God's will, our spiritual lives are weak and malnourished and we will die. Friends, doing the will of God is important because it's the very food on which we feed. It's the very thing that we were created to do as God's people. But here's the thing that starts to tie all these images together. The living water, the true worship, the food. It's this fact and this fact alone. Meeting Jesus changes everything. It sounds simple, I apologise, normally I'm at kids' church, simple is great there, but I don't think it needs overcomplicating. Meeting Jesus changes everything. It breaks down every human barrier we can create. It satisfies every human longing and it spurs us into worship and obedience to God. What truth could be more simple than that and that alone? Meeting Jesus changed Nicodemus. Meeting Jesus changed this Samaritan woman. And it changes each and every person that hears it, whether we accept Jesus in that moment or not. And I don't think that we can fully get it until we see the delight on someone's face who meets Jesus for the first time. As they watch Nicodemus be reborn, as they watch the Samaritan woman drink the living water that Jesus himself offers her. Just this week, I got to watch a 17-year-old came to camp, keen to defend anything but Christianity. 
but who met Jesus and who walked away having devoured four chapters of The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Meeting Jesus changes everything. It changed everything for a 16-year-old who I was up to till about 1am the other night with, who is now convinced that the gospel is true, cool, good step, but who just wants to take some time to figure out whether Jesus is someone she wants to commit her life to. In fact, she wants to start a Jesus book club, she says, so that she can get together with Christians and just pepper them with questions on what she's been reading that month. Jesus changes everything. And it changed everything for a 16-year-old girl who, before Monday at 10 a.m. when she rocked up to Golston Gorge, had never heard a thing about Jesus, never stepped foot in anything like a church or youth group, and yet who Thursday night prayed that she would be accepted into God's family and asked Jesus to accept her as a living sacrifice in Jesus' name, by God's Spirit. Meeting Jesus changes everything. And friends, if you know that, then how could we not spill out that knowledge to those around us? What better message do we have from John 4 than the fact that meeting Jesus breaks down every human barrier, satisfies every human longing that we could possibly have in our hearts, and spurs us to true worship and full obedience to our great God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for all that he has done in offering us living water. We ask that we might send this message out in the name of your spirit to our family, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our schoolmates, to anyone we come across, that they too might meet you and be changed by meeting you. We pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.